Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. Thank you all for coming today, and welcome to the April Conservative Women's Network Lunch. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner, representing the Heritage Foundation today. We've been partners doing this now for a couple of decades, and uh, it's such a treat to come every month. Today, I'm pleased to introduce our April CWN speaker, Megan Cox-Gurdon, who will be talking about her new book, the Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. And I just finished it last night, and it is so good. It is a wonderful book because it talks, the primary focus is little ones and the advantage to little kids of being read to, their vocabulary, their brain, their even the love in the family and all that. But it's not just about children. Towards the end, she talks about other ages and how seniors and people in nursing homes and Holocaust survivors and even dogs who have been mistreated, the benefits of the human voice in reading aloud. She was here a few years ago, and she spoke about the importance of reading aloud to children, and she told us she was going to be writing a book on the topic, and here it is, The Enchanted Hour, and we're going to be selling it outside for those of you who would like it, and she will sign it for, what do we say, twice? Free. <laughs> 27 I think. Oh, yeah, $27. 27 And we have a credit card machine if you don't have money. Megan is an essayist, a book critic, and a former foreign correspondent who has been the Wall Street Journal children's book reviewer since 2005. She's also written numerous other critical pieces for the paper, including op-eds and reviews of books by authors such as Salman Rushdie and J.K. Rowling. Her work has appeared widely in publications such as the Washington Examiner, the Daily Telegraph, and the Washington Post, to name just a few. In the 1990s, she lived and worked overseas as a foreign correspondent. Based first in Hong Kong, later in Tokyo, and then in London, she traveled and reported extensively from Cambodia to Somalia, from China to Israel, from South Korea to Northern Ireland. She graduated magna cum laude from Bowdoin College, she lives just outside of D.C. with her husband, Hugo, and they have five children. And I hope I get this right. Aged 25, 4, 24, 23, 2, <laughs> 18, 17, and 14. How's that? Close. Close really kind of close. Please join me. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> So I'm here to sell you something. Uh, two things, actually. Uh, one has a price tag, as you know, and that's this. I hope you'll buy it. Um, 
But the book explores the second thing that I hope you'll buy today, and that is an idea, and it's free. Uh, the idea is a simple, ancient, inexpensive, fantastically powerful way to conserve the best parts of being human in the age of screens, the age of distraction. It is an antitoxin, an anti-venom, a broad-spectrum antibiotic that protects against some of the most destructive emotional social and cognitive side effects of this time that we're in. If you buy the book, great. I would love to sign it for you afterward. Uh, if you just want to buy the idea, that's also great. If you buy at least one of the things I'm selling, I promise that you'll be taking a step forward into a future that is happier, healthier, calmer, more physiologically rewarding, and more culturally enriched. And you'll have company, because this idea only really works when other people are involved. Now, the idea, of course, is the simple, ancient, inexpensive, fantastically consequential activity of one person reading aloud to another. Simple. All it takes is a book, a reader, and a companion who listens. It might be a mother and child on a sofa. It might be a married couple sitting on a veranda with a short story. It might be a daughter who takes a book of poetry to the hospital so that she can read to her father. Ancient. Reading aloud has its origins in oral storytelling. It's a practice as old as humanity itself. Inexpensive. The cost is a bit of time and a bit of sustained attention, and that's it. And fantastically consequential. I've written a whole book about that. Reading aloud is something, as you were saying, that people associate with the cozy, messy bedtime routines of parents who have little children or babies. And that makes sense. It is, in fact, one of the great bedtime rituals. And in the context of the early years, it's one of the most uh, extraordinary ways you can help children uh, develop and flourish at those years when their brains are growing the fastest. Listening to stories while looking at the illustrations in picture books engages the deep brain networks. And that fosters optimal cognitive development. It helps children develop focus and concentration. It kindles a love of language and art. It equips children to speak and express themselves well and to understand what other people are saying to them something that is crucial when they get to school, because in the early elementary years in particular, almost all instruction is oral rather than written or read. And as children enjoy stories and pick up language, they develop empathy, emotional resilience, self-regulation, and self-mastery. And these capacities, which have to be learned, make them better friends and better students when they do get to school. We have the research to prove all of this. There's almost nothing else like reading aloud to cultivate a young human being, not just because it's good in itself, but because it also fosters so many healthy and productive ways of being in a child and in the adults who care, who care for a child. Reading aloud is so powerful in its effects and so nourishing for children that social scientists say getting that mediated time with books and an adult is one of the most important indicators of a child's prospects in life. And here's the thing, as you were saying, <laughs> it's not really just about children or just for children at all. So let me pause now just to say um, thank you for coming to have lunch with me today. I'm sorry I was late. Um, I'm so delighted to have an opportunity to evangelize on my absolute favorite topic. Thank you so much to both of you for inviting me and having me here and putting the event together. It's a privilege. Hang on, it's 2019. I better check my privilege. <laughs> yeah, it's a privilege to be here with you. <laughs> okay, so I want to say a quick word about the practical value of reading aloud 
in the age of distraction. And then I want to sort of pivot to the way that shared reading, shall we say, intersects with some larger forces at work today. So the age of distraction. Here it is, right? Can't live with it, can't live without it. I mean, we are all grappling with these things, right? How to live in harmony with them. They're phenomenal tools. They're fantastic. They've made so many things so easy. But they've also made it so difficult, you know, to focus and pay attention, to retain what we've seen and heard, to be fully present, even with the people we love most, even when it really matters. I mean, tech makes it hard for many of us even to feel at ease if we have a moment of downtime. There's that urge to grab the phone. I mean, there's a reason so many of us seem to be addicted to these machines, and that is because we are addicted to them. By the way, I've lost track of the number of people who've said to me that they no longer really read anymore. It's sort of hard to pay attention. They open a novel and try to read, and the eye just skitters away. I find this when I try to read the newspaper, which I, which I do, but you know, it takes, it takes an extra effort. So a few minutes ago, I used um, medical analogies, you know, an antitoxin, an antivenom, a broad-spectrum antibiotic, the effects of reading aloud. And that's true. That is how it works. Where technology encourages us to dart and flit and scroll and click, half aware, half focused, half understanding, time set aside to read encourages in both parties, reader and listener, sustained and prolonged attention spans. This is useful for adults. For children, it's crucial. We can talk about why later, if you like. Where technology sends us off into our own separate virtual realities, reading, to reading together brings us together in a warm, real way that is physiologically comforting. We are social animals, after all. We need the presence of other people. It builds relationships. In the book, I quote the fantasy writer Ursula Le Guin, who wrote, Love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made new. So reading aloud every day has that effect. It bakes the bread of love. <laughs> and then there is, of course, the deep engagement with uh, the richness and beauty of language, with literature, with story, characters, depth. The depth that we get through literature in this way is the opposite of the shallow, you know, tech experience. So to make a long argument very, very short, turning off your tech and encountering one another in shared reading is kind of a way to reclaim humanity. It strengthens emotional connections and allows us to relish this wide and wonderful cultural legacy that we are all so fortunate to have inherited. So I promised a pivot. Here it is. Since we are in a den of conservatism, I'm going to talk about conservation. But in this case, the conservation is not political. This is a matter that ought to be as important to liberals as it is to conservatives. So the politics really need to come out of it. The matter is this. Works of imagination, the living body of literature, is under attack from within. People in the book industry, writers and book bloggers and some editors and agents, are collaborating to make some works and some authors unacceptable, declaring them beyond the pale. Some of the books are old and their authors are dead. Some of the books have only been out for a few years and their authors have come under appalling attack. Some manuscripts are being strangled before they have a chance to be printed. And as I've learned from talking to people in the industry, some ideas never make it past now, the, the early pitch stages, because they're too toxic, regarded as that. 
What the books and their unfortunate authors have in common is that in some way they have been, been found insufficiently woke. If you're on social media at all, I'm going to guess from the general age group here that there are some people who may look at social media occasionally. You've probably watched, as I have, with amazement verging on horror at the call-out and cancel cultures. I mean, nothing is funny online, right? Jokes are dangerous. I never imagined I would see a time when Americans who write books, literary people, would publicly excoriate and demand the suppression of novels uh, by other writers that they find problematic. But it's happening. It's happening on the grounds that, for instance, important characters do not express up-to-the-minute progressive moral sensitivities. And yet here we are, with the elevation of emotion over reason, with the taking of offense without regard to intent, with the imputing of racism if an author depicts people of different skin colors or ethnicities from his or her own, and the imputing of racism if an author doesn't depict people of different skin colors or ethnicities from his own. Yet the accusation of cultural appropriation if an author writes about people from a different tradition or society. If authors do not write about people from different traditions or societies, they might find themselves accused of centering their narrative in a way that marginalizes those people. I mean, there is no end to the crimes and no forgiveness, even though many of the transgressions would seem to cancel each other out. Authors are told to stay in their lanes and not presume to describe what are called the lived experiences of others, because that's not okay. And at the same time, authors who are careful to stay in their lanes to avoid depicting people unlike themselves in their writing can be found guilty, guilty of erasing others. And that's not okay either. Writers who create characters who themselves notice that others are not exactly like them are in jeopardy too, because they may be seen to be othering others or even exoticizing them, which is not allowed either. The language of intersectionality is so hungry. It's infinitely expandable. It's like a prairie fire that devours as it spreads. Overlapping modes of oppression, patriarchy, heteronormativity, ableism, ageism, any of these sins can get an author and his or her books burned in the public square of social media. As the philosopher Roger Scruton said the other day, we are entering a dangerous social condition in which the direct expression of opinions that conflict or merely seem to conflict with a narrow set of orthodoxies is instantly punished by a band of self-appointed vigilantes. In the book business, there are practical consequences. People are losing jobs and reputations, having their books pulled off shelves, having their books pulled right before publication, having their ideas, as I said, rejected before they make it to manuscript form. And this is happening with particular ferocity in the young adult world. This year, already, two writers, both of them authors of color, um, have come under such ferocious attack from the so-called diversity Jedi, who have, in the lingo, seized the conversation over what can and can't be written in books for teenagers, that their novels have been killed. I actually brought one of them to show you. This is how far it made it. It's called A Place for Wolves by Kosoko Jackson. It made it all the way to galley form. It was supposed to come out this month, and it was killed. What was it about? In an interesting, well, it's, it's about, it's a, it's a, he's a, he styles himself as a queer writer, and uh, he's, um, he, it's a love story set in Kosovo, but he made some mistakes with uh, who, how he depicted the, mistakes, crimes, the way that he depicted the, um, the villain of the story. And, um, and yeah, no, it was, it was really very tough. And in an interesting twist, some of you may have followed this controversy, that author himself had been very, very involved in jumping on, and the, uh, the, the earlier writer this year, 
whose name slips my mind at the moment, uh, he was one of her chief tormentors online for her infractions. She herself, that's right, remember, she's Chinese-born, moved to the States in, when she was 18, and uh, was depicting scenes that she imagined having taken place in China, but people here regarded them as transgressive because they seemed to be, well, I don't want to get too far afield, but it seemed, seemed to be describing slavery, and slavery for certain young adult authors is only understood in one context and at one historical period. Okay, so contemporary young adult literature is, of course, a noisy but relatively small part of the culture of books. But the finger of censure is busy pointing backwards, too. You, remember, you may remember that Laura Ingalls Wilder, who died in 1957, had her name stripped last year from the prestigious award that was established in her name a couple of years earlier, I think 1953. Um, and it was... <laughs> The award was established to honor writers who've made a substantial and lasting contribution to literature for children. At the time, a representative of the American Library Association explained that Wilder's works reflect dated cultural attitudes towards indigenous people and people of color that contradict modern acceptance, celebration, and understanding of diverse communities. Now, it is true that Wilder does write about characters who have less than enlightened points of view and who failed to, to demonstrate cultural sensitivity. So her name has to come off the award? Look, the past is another country. People do things differently there. I am actually all for the movement to expand the types of writing, the types of characters, the types of authors, the representation of people from different traditions and backgrounds and cultures and books of all kinds. I think that's wonderful. The more, the merrier. But let us expand, not contract. The disgracing of books that fail to match modern expectations, it's madness. It's so crude. It's so unfair. And I have to say, as a child who personally devoured those little house books, and then as a mother returning and reading them year after year with my own children, I've always been struck by the amount of moral nuance that they contain. You know, some of the characters, Laura's mother in particular, Ma, commit real crimes like othering and exoticizing and centering their whiteness and whatever, but it's complicated. There's a lot of admiration and compassion, too. Children who read these books get a glimpse of the real complexities of the lived experiences of people in the 19th century. You know, joys and struggles, and yes, cruelty, too, as I think Wilder intended. And we don't agree with Laura's mother when she says harsh things. I remember as a child being embarrassed for her. And I think that means that Laura Ingalls Wilder was doing her job as a writer, in collaboration, by the way, with her daughter, who was very important. A few years ago, the uh, literary critic Michael Durda was on a panel uh, at a literary conference, and he happened to remark that he thought that Rudyard Kipling was a wonderful writer, which he is. Immediately, Durda wrote afterwards, a number of people in the audience began to boo and hiss. Two of my fellow panelists nearly shrieked that Kipling was utterly beyond the pale, being at once racist, misogynist, and imperialist. Kipling was not woke. You know who else wasn't woke? Dr. Seuss. You may remember an incident early in the Trump presidency. The First Lady sent a box of Dr. Seuss books to an elementary school in Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, in celebration of National Read a Book Day. And a librarian at the school rejected the gift. In a letter to Melania Trump, she said that Seuss's illustrations are, quote, steeped in racist propaganda, caricatures, and harmful stereotypes. Now, that was a bit of moral preening. The country was very excited at the time. But it's also a token of how far and how fast things have been moving in the book culture. The diversity Jedis do not rest. 
The pressure is on to cleanse the shelves. Many once loved books can no longer be read in schools uh, unless the teachers and administrators, administrators are exceptionally daring or reckless or maybe Catholic. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of amazing, you know? I mean, it's not amazing that it's happening. It's amazing to me that it's happening here. We have plenty of precedent in human history. The vindictive silencing of dissident voices, the demand to suppress and destroy books and their authors, the pulling of volumes from the shelves, that's happened before. It's always ugly and vicious and stupid. It was in 15th century Florence when Savonarola burned books along with mirrors and clothing and suggestive works of art in the original bonfire of the vanities. It was in 20th century China during the Cultural Revolution when Red Guards drunk on power and their own rectitude ransacked libraries and homes, beating and killing the human occupants and torching and trashing books, manuscripts, and scrolls. We saw it in 1988 and 1989 when crowds in India and Pakistan rioted at the very idea of Salman Rushdie's novel, The Satanic Verses. After the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran issued a death warrant, Rushdie spent years living in hiding. As we know, the mob didn't get him, but three months later, oh sorry, three months after Khomeini upped the ante in 1991, he then expanded his fatwa to include everybody involved in the production of the book. Um, Rushdie's Japanese translator, man named Hitoshi Igarashi was found stabbed to death in his office. That kind of literary criticism is not funny at all. <laughs> now, in the book, I don't go into any gory detail of this sort, but I do address what I hope, in a, uh, what I hope is a sensible uh, way of approaching this problem that we have in American literature today. Real books, wonderful real books, and maybe so, not some, you know, some not so wonderful real books, are at risk and the people who write them are being unpersoned, and it is wrong. When a society is going through a spasm of purification, we can call it, or ideological struggle, or a descent into barbarism, somebody has to conserve the endangered things. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to tell you the story of someone whose whole life exemplifies what I'm talking about here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. His name is Chun Guangcheng. He's a Chinese human rights campaigner. Uh, you may know him as the barefoot lawyer. In 2012, he made a dramatic escape from house arrest in China uh, and scaled the wall of the American embassy and gained asylum. And he lives actually here now with his wife and children. And they're wonderful, and I've met them. When Chun was a toddler, he had a fever and he lost his vision. And as a blind child in rural China in the late 1970s, he couldn't go to school like the other children. Uh, so while they were all off at the communist-run school, he spent his days fooling around outdoors like a sort of latter-day Huckleberry Finn. His mother couldn't read or write, but his father had just managed to get a rudimentary education before the Cultural Revolution shuttered all the schools. He wanted his son to have some kind of education, too. So every night, the father read to the boy. They read legends and mythology and Chinese history. In Chun's autobiography, he describes what that reading meant to him and how it had powerful and lasting effects for him. He says, the stories my father read to me served as a counterpoint to the official party line and the usual propaganda. Just as important was that my father's stories and our discussions about them gave me an organic education in ethics, providing a framework with which to understand my experience as a disabled child. The stories I heard when I was young allowed me to imagine myself in the position of the characters, to consider how I would react 
is faced with similar challenges, to devise my own responses, and then to compare them with what actually took place. He goes on. Chinese history is full of examples of the disempowered overcoming the odds through wit and daring. Though I lacked the conventional education of my peers, I also avoided the propaganda that was part and parcel of the party's educational system. Instead, my father's texts became my foundational texts in everything from morality to history and literature and provided me with a roadmap for everyday life. Their reading, incidentally, took place not that long after the end of the Cultural Revolution, and a lot of the books that Chun's father read to him had been banned during that violent time. And then they weren't. The fever had passed. So the fact that contemporary American culture seems to be in the grip of a kind of zeal for purification is not necessarily a reason to panic, though it is alarming. It is, I think we can say, a call to arms. And that's where we come back to the mission of my book. I want everyone here, every one of you, I want everyone in this country, if possible, to begin to devote a little bit of time every day to reading out loud. A, because it's fantastically generative and enriching and an even ennobling activity. But B, because it means that the authors that we read in doing so, that is to say, in the books that we read, we can keep alive stories and authors and adventures and language that might otherwise struggle to survive both the current craze for intersectionality and the wider adaptation that we're all having to life with the internet. So if you have children you can read to, your own or your nieces and nephews or maybe at a school near you, or if you have grandchildren, babies, toddlers, teenagers, whatever, if you have someone you love, a spouse, a partner, a roommate, a grandparent, I urge you to read as much and as many books that you loved yourself when you were young. Anything from the past will do. Poetry, nonfiction, classics, go for it. Read the people you love, the books that you loved. Make sure those stories are part of their lives. Because if you don't, especially if they're young, they may never encounter them. There is no guarantee that their schools will expose them. And if you're lucky enough to have older relatives with whom you'd like to establish a deeper bond, people with whom maybe you've lost touch and you have very little to talk about, but you want to show love for them or be with them and connect with them in some way, I urge you to try reading to them. You know, when George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush were in their later stages of life and they were both in and out of the hospital, their son Neil read to them. It was kind of a debt of gratitude. Their mother, in particular, had read to all those children uh, all through their childhoods. And Neil wanted to repay the favor. Uh, I have the story in my book. It's very touching. Um, he, uh, one of the things he read to his mother was her own memoir. And that was incredibly moving for him to read his mother's words to her. And we can assume moving for her as well. Now, most of us, at least I, do not have parents who lived a celebrated public life and have written memoirs. Um, but, you know, any text from the past, any text from your past or their past, is a good place to start. It is amazing how powerful the encounter can be. There's an almost mystical bond that develops when we read together. In the course of researching my book, um, you've just mentioned this, Michelle, I was able to uh, attend a reading group in London led by a younger woman and, and attended by survivors of the Holocaust. They'd all been very young during the conflagration, but their whole lives had been changed because of it. And they gather every week around two round tables. And those who can see get handouts so they can follow. There's a rule. You can't jump ahead of the reader, but you can follow. So they can follow. They get the pleasure of seeing the words and the pleasure of hearing the words at the same time. 
and those who are no longer you know, able to see or able to see well just sit and listen. And for everybody there, I mean, it's absolutely the brightest part of their week. And I mean, these were very intelligent, wonderful people. Um, but you know, it's lonely and quiet late in life for some. One of the participants said to me, you know, otherwise you're just watching television or looking at the walls or something. And here you get to use your mind and be engaged and visualize things. There is, as I mentioned earlier, also a physiologically soothing sort of social aspect to reading together. And then, you know, there's just that magical escape, lifting up and out of ordinary life and traveling on the reader's voice to a place that you have not been before. So, oh, I see. Sorry, I just missed my own, I missed, misread my own thing here. Um, but the thing about it is, right, it's not just you and me, and I'm reading to you and you're listening to me talk, blah, blah, blah. It's you and me and the author and the story and the characters and the colors and the language and the associations and the memories and the whole rich, wonderful, nurturing experience of literature. I mean, it's a humane encounter that is so different from the rest of life. So I'm going to finish up now by, if I may, whoops, sorry, I'm always crashing around with microphones, by reading the afterword to my own book. It's a a little bit cheating, I guess, because you're not getting you and me and the author, because I am the author. <laughs> um, but anyway, here we go. Let me just find this. Okay. In The Little Prince, a desert fox confides a secret the small visitor from asteroid B612, which he in turn tells the author, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It has become the most famous quotation from that famous book. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Walking in the bleak, beautiful desert with the little prince, Saint-Exupéry is astonished by a sudden, sudden understanding. He tells us, when I was a little boy, I lived in an old house, and legend told us that a treasure was buried there. To be sure, no one had ever known how to find it. Perhaps no one had ever looked for it. But it cast an enchantment over that house. My home was hiding a secret in the depths of its heart. Yes, I said to the little prince, the house, the stars, the desert, what gives them their beauty is something that is invisible. What is essential is invisible to the eye seems to me that the promise and the treasure of reading aloud is a little like that. As a spectacle, it's dull, right? There's a grown-up sitting with a child or two, or perhaps a half dozen other grown-ups sitting around two round tables. There is a book or a stack of them, or a sheaf of photocopied poems. There's a clock and a bit of time. There is the human voice reading and a human ear listening. What makes the experience beautiful and essential, the richness of the emotional exchange, the kindling of the mind, the voyaging in imagination, the sharing of culture and pathos and humor, is invisible to the eye. Yet its effects can be seen, and they are lovely. We live in a time of immense complexity, dizzying and dazzling sophistication that would seem to make a mockery of simpler ways and things. Yet there is magic in simplicity. Flour and water and yeast make bread. Pen and paper and imagination make a portrait, a landscape, a novel. Two people and a book 
together make an experience of force and significance out of all proportion to the time it takes. When the writer Anna Dudney knew that brain cancer was taking her early from this world, she asked that in lieu of a funeral or memorial service, her friends and the people who loved her books would read to a child. She knew what was essential. In a piece for the Wall Street Journal's Speakeasy blog, she wrote, when we read with a child, we are doing so much more than teaching him to read or instilling in her a love of language. We are doing something that I believe is just as powerful, and it is something that we are losing as a culture. By reading with a child, we are teaching that child to be human. Reading aloud is a small thing, yet it is profound. To read to someone you love is the simplest of gifts and one of the greatest. All that is required for a long, happy string of enchanted hours is for someone to take the trouble to make it happen. Surely that is something we can aspire to do with love. Thank you. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I have to tell you, when I read it, I plunged right in because I want to finish it before. Yeah, so good. <laughs> and so I started madly writing down the titles of different things. So remember, for my grandkids, she's got them all listed in the back. I do. <laughs> all the books that she uh, mentions. And then she has another wonderful list. So if you got kids or grandkids, this is such a good book. Or if you have to buy something for a, yeah, for yeah. a baby shower or something. Yeah. Well, buy the book, obviously. <laughs> and, then, and then there are lots of uh, picture books and things listed, Absolutely. too. Yeah. And uh, from a great, I will say, from a huge variety. I mean, right, literature is just full of everything. There's all kinds of wonderful things. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, if you would um, raise your hand, I'll let you call on. Sure, people. absolutely. You give your name and your affiliation, and we have two mics here. Any questions? Hi, I'm Michelle Cordero. I work here at the Heritage Foundation. I was just curious your thoughts on audiobooks. Um, as a mom, I'm exhausted when I get home, and then I read to my kids, and then there is no time to read myself, so I listen in the car. But I assume that experience is a little different than the one you're talking about. Well, it, it is, and I will say, first of all, it's so interesting. That is actually the number one question I am asked. Um, and I think it actually speaks to something, which is that it's only really relatively recently that audiobooks have begun to shed their uh, sort of sense of, there's sort of almost shame attached to them. Like, oh, I didn't really read it. I, okay, as far as I'm concerned, you read the book. Yeah, I think audiobooks are fantastic. I use them all the time. I recorded my own book as an audiobook, so I commend it to your attention. Sorry to keep selling, it's ridiculous. But, um, <laughs> you know, here's, here's what you get with audiobooks, right? You get, you get, um, you can, the literature can be anything you want, as demanding as you want. You get it beautifully read. You can listen to it anytime. All of that is true and wonderful. What you don't get, especially in the context of children, is the audiobook doesn't know if a child doesn't understand something. It can't stop and make a connection between something else in life and say, oh, you like, remember they rode with a surrey and the fringe on top. You remember that? Remember what a surrey with a fringe on top is? Oh, I'll explain a surrey, and there are other kinds of, you know, whatever. You can, there's none of that, none of that exchange. And that kind of um, contingency, that responsiveness to a child's interests and and whether they're listening or losing track or whatever, that's extremely important in the younger years. It's one of the reasons why we want to keep babies away from screens and toddlers as well and keep them, keep them talking to us. They need us. But outside of that context, especially as a supplement to other kinds of reading, it's fantastic. I highly, highly endorse it. Oh, I will say one, the, other thing, the only other thing you lose, obviously, not just the contingency and the response, but that physiological reward that comes from reading together. Um, 
when a parent and a child sit down together, as you do, even when exhausted with your children, um, you know, you know that feeling. It's like, oh, even if it's been really hectic to get to that moment, it's like, oh, I've got to get the, you know, there's this, whew. that feeling is a real thing. It's chemical. You are experiencing a drop in your cortisol, as are your children, and you're experiencing a rise in your oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. So your stress is going down. Your sense of warmth and togetherness is increasing. That's a real thing. And lovely as audiobooks are, they can't give you that. Thank you so much for this talk. It was very refreshing and quite beautiful. Um, my name is Leanna, and I'm an intern with the Heritage Foundation. And I was just curious as to what are your favorite books that you read your children? Oh, that. Uh, um, I always, it's, it's, it's like being asked, which is my favorite child? <laughs> I cannot possibly comment. Uh, but I do. Treasure I, Island. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. No, I mean, I, I would say probably my dearest read aloud is Treasure Island. I just love that book. I've found I've read it over and over and over again to my children, and um, uh, and it, it's full of full of fabulous language, great characters. I mean, like the villain Long John Silver. This just he's just one of the greatest bad dudes in all of literature because he's charming, right? The perfect kind of villain. Um, and it's you know it's exciting, and and the the young character does, you know is, it, it has a lot of agency and makes a lot of mistakes, and so that's my favorite book. Um, and, uh, and I make the argument in the book as well that it's, it's well worth doing if you have like a passel of children or children of different ages um, to start reading challenging books earlier than you might think that they need to have them or that they can even take them in. Because as they grow, as we found with Treasure Island, as, as, you know, it came around every couple of years, let's say. And, uh, and each time they heard it, they understood much more. You know, they were really responsive to the, to the, to the, to the whole thing, to the whole experience. Um, what else did we love? Oh gosh, so many. Oh, oh good night, Moon. I'm just thinking. Oh, good night, Moon. I remember yeah. you talked a lot about. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I have to consult the list in the back to tell you. <laughs> Let's. We'll just. We'll sit with those. Those are great. I know Narnia. I mean, all the obvious ones, right? And also, I, well, now you've got me going. Um, uh, uh, the, of the Little House books, I have to say. So I grew up. I had a very unusual upbringing. Um, I moved to Maine when I was 12, and lived with my father, who built his house with his hands. Uh, we were kind of back to the landers. And um, so we didn't have running water, and we didn't have, I mean, I'm so bourgeois today, you would never guess, but we didn't have, we had, you know, we had an outhouse, we had a spring, we got our water from a spring, we had, in the first couple of years I lived with my dad, I was 12 when I moved up with him, um, we had kerosene lights, that was our lights, so I didn't have TV, any of that stuff, for a couple of years in the woods of Maine, and so I really identified with the little house books, and one of the reasons I loved reading them to my children was that I was able to say, oh my gosh, we also did sugaring, and we also did butchering. And I never played with a little inflated pig's bladder the way the girls do in that book. Remember, that's a scene that a lot of people remember. But of those books, my absolute favorite was Farmer Boy, I have to say. Mm. Yeah, it was great. That's good. I'd just like to ask if you are familiar with um, an, a movement in education today called Critical Literacy. That is now in the elementary schools in Fairfax County, and oh, I am not. I mean, I'm not an educator. Tell me. No, but okay. So my daughter's in fourth grade. Maybe you're familiar with Patricia Polacco's beautiful book, Dear Mr. Falker. I'm familiar with her books. Yeah. Okay, so this is a beautiful story about a dyslexic girl, Patricia, and she tells her story how this dear teacher helped her to read. 
So the teacher had the children ask who had power, who didn't have power, and how did it make them feel? So this is a better, another reason to read aloud at home. So your children learn how to read properly. And I just, I'm interested in it's <laughs> Thank It's you. chilling. I mean, it's absolutely chilling. The whole world is being reframed in this way. Who, who agreed to this? Madness. Okay, I, I resist. <laughs> <laughs> resistant reader. Oh, I'm a resistant reader. Yeah, I expect so. Yeah, clinging to my texts. Thank you. Uh, excellent presentation. Um, I'm Joe Coyle from the Business Communications Group. <clears throat> My question is, are there programs teaching parents to read to their kids aloud? There, there is a, yeah, there are enormous and wonderful philanthropic efforts. Um, the, the effort is principally aimed, of course, at low socioeconomic status families. Um, great. Why not? Um, there is a, you know, there's a, a fantastic operation called Reach Out and Read. Uh, that works through, they train pediatricians to train parents to read. So they, they actually, it's fabulous. And I had a whole chapter about it and other philanthropic efforts in the book, and my editor and I decided just it didn't quite fit with the, the mission here. But um, I, wish I, I wish I'd done it. But anyway. Um, uh, so for instance, what Reach Out and Read does is they, they, the pediatricians will give children and families books when they come in. And then sometimes they'll, they'll use the book actually as part of the, you know, to get the child to, to, to show different things. And um, in this way, kind of familiarize families. They also, I spent some time at Bellevue Hospital in New York where they have a really wonderful Reach Out and Read program. And they have uh, volunteer readers who just sit in the reception area and they model it. Because everybody, we all need role models, right? I needed a role model um, it, to become the fanatic that I am today on this subject. It was a friend of mine who I saw drop everything to read to her kids when she, I mean, she had babies before I did. And I thought, that's fantastic. I want to be that. You know, so it was, it's emboldening, right, to have a to have a good role model. Um, there are also there are other groups like there's a group in upstate New York called the Family Reading Partnership. They're also wonderful in Tompkins County. They have uh, they they operate out of Ithaca, New York. They get uh, students from Cornell to go into the schools to read to children. They um, have um, uh, what are they called? Um, they're called something big red bookshelves or maybe little red bookshelves. I've forgotten, but um, that are sprinkled all through the county and they put donated books in them so families you know, can take them. And again, they're put in places where, um, you know, where it might be, where, where families might be sort of having to hang around, like the courtroom and the hospitals and places like that. So yeah, I mean, that's just, I'm only barely touching the, the, the vast quantity. And there are people like Dolly Parton, bless her. She has sent something like 100, I, I'm going to get the number wrong, but 100 million books mm -hmm. to children. I mean, she's just tireless and generous. And so yeah, I, you know, I, I read about this a bit in the, in the first chapter. You know, I am hoping, and I think there is reason to be hopeful, that we are at kind of an inflection point as a culture. That people, things have moved very quickly with, I mean, leaving aside the intersectionality, but things have moved very quickly with our adaptation to screens and all the things that we've lost in changing and going to the screen. And um, there is, a, there is a, a campaign underway right now called Read Aloud 15 Minutes. It's a philanthropic effort. Um, put together by a woman who had run uh, a company, uh, founded and ran a company that, that dealt with um, a laboratory, a la sort of lab testing uh, company. I'm sorry, again, not telling this very well. Um, and she was starting to see that there was a problem with the quality of the American high school and college graduates that she was getting and, and, and traced the problem back to the origin, which is, which is early literacy. It's so important. I mean, it's just 
and I mean, I barely touched on that today. I, again, commend you to the book. Um, and, uh, but what, what she found when she was working on this uh, public outreach campaign, they do PSAs, you know, spots on television, that sort of thing, is that at other times in American history, we have come, we've, we've been in the middle of something very problematic, as it were, and it's taken, it, it, we, we can be in it for a long time, and then we get to the point where we realize, actually, we really have a problem with this. And then when, when that recognition is sufficiently widespread, then it doesn't take very much to kind of push us into a better way of being. So examples of this are, weirdly enough, toothbrushing, which only became widespread in the United States after the Second World War. Um, smoking, right? We always, I mean, there were ashtrays everywhere. Now they're a kind of novelty item at a tag sale. Uh, drunk driving, another one. People were getting killed left and right. And, you know, a kind of there was an upswelling. So I am hoping that we now know so much from the science of reading aloud, of what takes place in the child's brain, extraordinarily deep, profound engagement of their cognitive networks. Unlike almost, I mean, anything else, it's just amazing. Um, that we're there, I hope we're there. I mean, I would like, I would love to be the person who pushes us over the edge into this new norm of everyone reading aloud, not just, you know, in the home context, but in schools, I mean, just everywhere it can possibly be done. It's so human, you know? It's just, and it's free. It costs nothing except time and $27. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can ask the last question unless you have one version. Oh, you go ahead. Go ahead. I just, I just want you to share with everyone. Uh, in the introduction, Michelle mentioned that you review children's books for the Wall Street Journal. If you can just tell everyone about your column, what day it appears, Absolutely. how they can find it, and the types of books that you Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I've been... Um, I am the children's book critic for the Wall Street Journal. I write a weekly column. It's on, in the Saturday paper, the review section, which I highly recommend. Even if I didn't write for the paper, I would definitely buy it for that. It's such a good paper. Thank you, everyone in New York, for producing it. Um, and I write about all kinds of books. I write about young adult books. I write about baby books. I write about poetry books and nonfiction books and, and fiction and all kinds of things. And I mean, it's really, I can only afford in 1,000 or 1,200 words a week to give a taste of some of the stuff that's out there. But there are splendid, beautiful, extraordinary, wonderful books being written, being illustrated, um, just great stuff. I mean, there's dross, of course, always, because that's any, there is in any industry. But, uh, but I'm, you know, I think there's, there's gorgeous stuff happening. And so you can look at it, you can find it online, you can find it in Dead Tree, which I like. <laughs> Um, yeah, great. So thank you so much for coming. We have a little gift for you. Oh, goody. Oh, good. We have our, this is our Claire Bufflow's limited edition coffee mug. Ooh, that's not so good. With her famous saying, no good deed goes unpunished. There you go. And a torch. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> On this chilly day. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Oh, good. Ooh. This is a great reading blanket from the Heritage <laughs> Foundation. Such a thing. I know. Thank you so much. Thank That's you so all for you. joining us. And join me in thanking Megan. Um, we have lunch uh, back in our shawl. Uh, conference center just uh, down the hallway and we look forward to having you join us where we can continue the conversation. Yeah, happily. So thank you. And I'll sign anything. <laughs>